0: 1 Kings chapter 18, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Let me pause there just long enough to remind you of a pattern that we're seeing in Elijah's life and ministry when we read of the word of the Lord coming to him. This is what drives him. This is what tells him to get up and go, or what tells him to stay put where he is. The word of the Lord came to him, okay? The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land unto all fountains of water, And unto all brooks peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him and fell on his face, and said, Art thou that, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go, tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned, that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said, He is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from thee that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to the words of verse 12, especially the end of the verse, this is Obadiah now speaking, where he says, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth, but I, thy servant, Fear the Lord from my youth. Given the boldness and courage of Elijah, I think it would be fair to say that he wouldn't have been an easy man to impress. When we eventually come to chapter 19, we'll find him complaining to the Lord that he's the only prophet left and that they're seeking to kill him too. Not a thought or a word on that occasion about those two groups of prophets hidden in a cave and not a word about Obadiah himself who served in the court of Ahab and who risked his life in order to shelter and provide for those two groups of 50 prophets. I can't help but wonder if Elijah, in some respects, resembles the Apostle Paul along these lines. There was a time when Paul solicited Barnabas to go with him to revisit the churches that they had planted. Barnabas was willing to accompany Paul, but they thought they should bring John Mark along with them. But because Mark had left their first missionary journey early and had turned back, Paul was absolutely against having Mark go with them on their second journey. Paul, simply put, was not impressed with John Mark. And so we read in Acts 15, verse 39, And the contention was so sharp between them, that is, Paul and Barnabas, that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And so we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, where we discover Elijah on a mission again. After what uh, verse 1 calls many days, after many days, we see the Lord directing Elijah to present himself to King Ahab the second time. Oh, what a difference that presentation would be from the first time. We saw when we commenced these studies in chapter 17 and verse 1 that Elijah comes out of nowhere to make the announcement that there would be no rain but by his word. We have no reason to think that Ahab even knew Elijah at that time. He certainly knew who he was by the time we find him now in this chapter in the third year of the drought and famine when the Lord's word through Elijah had come to pass, O oh, Ahab was very much aware of him by now. And now he must present himself to Ahab again, with King Ahab being fully aware that the word of the Lord had come to pass through Elijah's word. And you'll note from verse 2 that there is no hesitation on Elijah's part to obey the Lord when the Lord's word came to him. No arguing with the Lord the way Ananias did when he was told to go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. So we read in Acts chapter 9 and verse 13... Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Oh, how easily Elijah might have reasoned the same way before the Lord. Lord, I've heard about this man, and I've specially heard about his wife, how wicked she is and what she does to the Lord's prophets but not a hint of resistance on the part of Elijah. There was no kind of arguing, even like that, that took place from Moses before God when Moses argued that he simply was not the man for the job to go and speak to Pharaoh. No, instead we read with regard to Elijah And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. What impressive obedience with little regard for the circumstances. Before Elijah would actually meet up with Ahab, though, he must first encounter another character, the man that we've read of in the portion we read here a moment ago, by the name of Obadiah. We're told in verse 3 that Obadiah was the governor of Ahab's house. That meant that he ruled over Ahab's house. He must have been, I suppose, a little bit like Joseph in Genesis 41, who was exalted to be over Pharaoh's house. Now here is this man, Obadiah, who is over Ahab's house. We're told also in verse 3 something very important about Obadiah. Not only that he was the governor over Ahab's house, but in a parenthetical statement, it's also a very important statement. We read, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. But oh, how Obadiah resisted the command of Elijah, found in verse 8, as Elijah says to him, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Following this command, a different kind of fear grips Obadiah's heart. So we read in verse 9, and he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Obadiah, you see, had no assurance that the meeting would actually happen between Elijah and Ahab. He thought the Spirit of God could carry Elijah away hither and yon. And when Ahab learned that Obadiah had met up with Elijah but failed to apprehend him, then surely Ahab would certainly have Obadiah executed. You can almost feel a tone of sarcasm in Obadiah, as if he's saying, Oh, right, yeah, I'll go tell Ahab that I've met with you. I'll tell him right where you are, and then he'll slay me. And he was convinced of that. A different kind of fear, I say, than the fear of the Lord is revealed here with regard to this character. So when I read to what amounts to a kind of prologue to the showdown that would take place between Elijah and Ahab and the prophets of Baal, what stands out to me in this narrative are two competing fears. There's the fear of the Lord, and there's the fear of man. It's these two contrasting fears that I want to focus on this morning. And before we're through with this study, I want to challenge and encourage you to cultivate the right kind of fear and conquer the wrong kind. Cultivate the right kind, conquer the wrong kind. That's what we're faced with. So, competing fears could be the title of this message. Competing fears. That's what I want to direct your attention to this morning. These two competing fears. And let's think first of all then on cultivating the right fear. Cultivating the right fear. I referenced already the words of verse 3. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. His godly fear becomes a point of emphasis in the narrative when Obadiah himself affirms it to Elijah in verse 12. This is dialogue now taking. In the first instance, it's the narrator of the book. In the second instance, it's Obadiah himself when he says to Elijah in verse 12, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. The thing to note in verse 3, like I just said, it is the author of 1 Kings that makes this statement about Obadiah. And so we could say, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit giving this kind of affirmation about Obadiah, that he feared the Lord greatly. For we're told in 2 Peter one twenty one, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So, in other words, the Holy Ghost inspired the writer of 1 Kings to make this statement about Obadiah that he feared the Lord greatly. If all we had was Obadiah's own statement about his fear of God, we might have cause to wonder about it. We wouldn't wonder whether or not he said it. The inspiration of the Bible would certainly lead us to affirm that he did make the claim to fearing God. But inspiration doesn't lead us to affirm the truth of every statement made in Scripture. Let me clarify what I mean by that. The devil told Eve that in the day she would eat of the forbidden fruit she would not die but would instead become like God. That was the devil's lie. And scripture records the devil's lie. But the fact that it records it doesn't mean that the devil's lie was indeed the truth. And that Eve would not die, it only means that the account of the devil's lie is a true account. So in the narrative of 1 Kings 18, when we find the author of the book making an affirmation that Obadiah feared the Lord, and not only that he feared him, but that he feared him greatly we can view, then, Obadiah's own affirmation of his godly fear to be the truth. It becomes an important matter in understanding Scripture, especially when it comes to analyzing the characters of the Bible that you pay special attention to what the narrator of any particular book may say. I think of Job when I think along these lines, and if you're studying the book of Job, the narration in that book becomes very important. Usually, the narrator serves a very minor purpose. He says, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, said, and he gives you all that he said. Then Job answered and said. And so the narrator is just uh, kind of functioning as a device to switch speakers. But there are other instances in which the whole chapter is devoted to what the narrator says, especially chapter one in Job, which is why I say that chapter is so foundational to rightly understanding the book. So keep in mind the narrator. As you're reading historical narrative, keep in mind the voice of the narrator. Include that in the list of characters, so to speak. So we're able to affirm then that Obadiah feared the Lord and that he feared him greatly. And the manifestation of this godly fear is also given to us both by the narrator and by Obadiah himself. Verses 3 and 4 give us the entire parenthetical statement of the author of 1 Kings. Look at what it says, verse 3. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Obadiah himself would cite that same deed to Elijah to provide for Elijah the evidence of his claim to having feared the Lord from his youth. Was it not told, my Lord? Obadiah says, verse 13, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. That's verse 13. It's readily apparent then that this man Obadiah feared the Lord greatly and that he feared him, as he says, even from his youth. Here then is the kind of fear that every believer should want and that every believer should cultivate. It is true, and Obadiah himself will demonstrate how fearful a character King Ahab was, how he could and undoubtedly would have Obadiah executed if Obadiah told him he just met with Elijah, but then Elijah somehow disappeared. I think what he anticipated was probably correct as to what the outcome would be for him personally were that to happen. Ahab's hatred for Elijah, notwithstanding, the words of Christ should be kept in mind when it comes to the believers' fear of the Lord. Christ says in Matthew 10 and verse 27, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So says Christ. I may have shared this with you before. Indulge me if I did. When I worked in the printing industry, there was a man who worked there, uh, very conservative in his political outlook. I think you could probably call him a Fox News junkie and a Rush Limbaugh disciple at the time. And very big on the Second Amendment, our right to bear arms. And I can remember having a discussion with this man, in which he asked me if I owned a gun, to which I said, no, I don't. Maybe I should, perhaps someday I will, but right now I don't. And he started to chide me for what he thought was my carelessness in the matter of defending myself. Do you know how vulnerable you could become to someone who could kill you? He asked To which I replied, suppose that is indeed the case. What can he do to me after that? (laughs) Well, the man had never thought about that before. To which I supplied the answer, he can do nothing to me after he's killed me. I will have departed from this world. I would be in the presence of the Lord and he'll have no access to me after that. So... Fear God rather than men. You've heard me say it on numerous occasions, and it is based on scripture that the fear of the Lord marks the beginning for the true Christian's knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you know nothing of that fear, you have not begun to be wise before the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. And in Proverbs 16, verse 6, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. And in Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. One more reference, this one from Psalm 19 in verse 9, where we read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I commend to you this morning, a study of that phrase, the fear of the Lord. You'll find it throughout the scriptures, no less than 15 times in the book of Proverbs. And if you care to trace that phrase through Proverbs or through the scriptures, you should note its importance, pay attention to its benefits, Take note of how it's learned and cultivated. It's something you see that needs to be learned, not simply academically, but experientially. It's something you need to know in your experience and not simply in your head. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 34. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an appeal to your senses. Know that the Lord is good, and know this, not simply in your head, but know it in your senses. Know it in the depth of your heart. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And then the Lord himself in that psalm, a few verses later, extends what you could say is his own personal invitation through the psalmist when we read in verse 11, Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm afraid that such a notion as the fear of the Lord is conspicuous in our day by its absence. The fear of the Lord, you see, is something you gain through your knowledge of God himself. It takes, dare I say it, the study of theology by which you learn the fear of the Lord. You gain the fear of the Lord through your knowledge of God himself I reference the setting in which the Lord gave the Ten Commandments as being very instructional when it comes to learning the fear of the Lord. Listen to these words. They're from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18. These words follow now the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been heard... And we read in verse 18, following that, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. For God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Doesn't that strike you as an unusual statement by Moses when he says, Fear not, for God has appeared to you to teach you his fear. So there is a sense in which they're not to fear. There's another sense in which they are. Interesting to note that at the end of that passage. Their fear of the Lord, you see, was not simply to be a frightful fear by which they were afraid. But then Moses goes on to say, after saying, fear not, for God has come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And would you note from those words, That it is the fear of the Lord then that becomes a restraining force against sin. You wonder why sin is so rampant today? Well, where's the fear of the Lord? And I might say that when the fear of the Lord is absent, uh, respect for authority is also absent. If they don't respect the one who has the ultimate authority, do you think there's much respect for the lesser authorities? And that in large measure accounts for the state of our nation and culture today. The fear of the Lord, you see, we must note this, that it takes the believer beyond being afraid. It takes him instead to what I often refer to as theologians and commentators and preachers do, to this reverential awe. So there is a spiritual sense in which God himself teaches the Christian the fear of the Lord. I believe that even more than the setting of Mount Sinai, the Christian learns the fear of the Lord at Mount Calvary. Here at the cross where the attributes of God shine most brilliantly is reverential awe to be mastered. Here at the cross is where the attributes of God so shine. At the cross is the manifestation of God's justice. Here at the cross is the manifestation of God's holiness. And when you think that when Christ stood in our place, that God would not be partial even to his own Son, Oh, how sinners do err to think that God will show partiality to anyone. He wouldn't show partiality to his own son when his son took our place. So here's the manifestation of holiness. Here's the manifestation of his power, the power even of his wrath. But here at the cross is also to be found the demonstration of God's love in God's grace, in God's mercy, in God's faithfulness. If you would learn the fear of the Lord, dear child of God, then make sure you spend much time at the cross gazing at one who was condemned in your place, redeeming you to himself, that ye might be brought into the family of God. Make sure you spend much time at Mount Calvary. Now, there's one more thing we must note from Obadiah's fear of the Lord that parents especially should take to heart. Notice from verse 12 that Obadiah says, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Underscore those last words especially. I fear the Lord from my youth. It is true that God himself teaches the Christian the fear of God by the Christian's experiential knowledge of God, but it's also true that the fear of the Lord is something that is taught by parents to their children, and that's why Obadiah could say he has known this fear from his youth. I dare say this is one of the most important things that parents can teach their children. The fear of the Lord. Parents, you want your children to turn away from sin? Then teach them the fear of the Lord. For it is by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 16 6. And do you want them to live lives that are clean and enduring? then teach them the fear of the Lord. For the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 19 and verse 9. Do you want them to live lives that are full of purpose and meaning and satisfaction? Then they must be taught the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19 verse 23. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life. And I believe what is meant by the wise man in that statement is that it tendeth to a quality of life. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. One of the things that worries me about young people today is they seem to be so aimless, so lacking in any sense of purpose about why they even exist. They don't know who made them, how they got here, what they're doing here, where they're going from here. Some may find for a while a vocation that interests them and maybe find some small sense of purpose in that. But oh, how far short they come of knowing that which is clean and enduring forever, that which tendeth to life that which enables them to abide satisfied. They have to know the fear of the Lord for that. You, see, you begin to see from these verses why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. It leads to all these things. It leads to restraint from sin. It leads to um, cleanness of life, satisfaction, etc., And the way the fear of the Lord must be taught by parents is both by precept and by example. Parents, if you don't fear the Lord, don't be surprised that your children don't either. The Shorter Catechism can be a useful tool in this regard. And your own attitude toward Christ and toward God's Word And toward God's worship of God and Christ will go a long way in teaching your children the fear of the Lord. So we note that the fear of the Lord was something Obadiah knew, something he possessed. He possessed it greatly, we're told, and it's something that he knew from his youth. So this is the right kind of fear. It is this fear which must be cultivated. But we move on to consider, secondly and finally, just two points today, that there's a wrong kind of fear that needs to be conquered. There's a right kind that needs to be cultivated. There's a wrong kind that needs to be conquered or overcome. And the contrast between them is great. The narrative makes it very clear that there was another kind of fear that was competing against Obadiah's fear of the Lord. This fear could be named in a couple of different ways. You could call it the fear of man. Obadiah was scared to death of King Ahab, and what could happen if Ahab were to discover that Elijah had been seen, but had escaped? Notice what we read in verse 9. This is Obadiah's response to Elijah's command that Obadiah go and tell Ahab that he's met with Elijah. And he, Obadiah, said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Why are you sending me to my death? And then he lays out his case for suggesting that Ahab would indeed slay him. As he continues, Obadiah that is, as the Lord thy God liveth, There is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. What a telling verse of scripture that reveals to us uh, just the extent of Ahab's animosity toward Elijah. Is he in your country, king, king so-and-so from Syria or wherever? No, he's not here. Swear to it. Swear that he's not there. Oh my, how this king wanted to capture this prophet. And so it, it does appear to be a rather perilous situation for Obadiah. He's aware of what Jezebel has already done to the prophets of the Lord. He's also aware of how angry uh, Ahab is with Elijah. This is definitely a case of the fear of man gripping Obadiah's heart. I wonder this morning, how often does that kind of fear grip your heart and mine? and even for far less serious things than what Obadiah faced. Earlier in the service, I quoted from Matthew 10, and verse 28, where Christ says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In that same passage, Christ goes on to say, just a few verses further, Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, what makes the difference between owning the Lord or not? Usually it's this, what has preeminence in your heart, the fear of the Lord or the fear of man? And if the answer is the fear of man, well, boy, you you need uh, an attitude adjustment. You need some perspective adjustment. You, You need to know whom to really fear. Now, I'm not about to say, based on Christ's statement, that you should Mount the soapbox, so to speak, in the place where you're employed and make it your daily routine to start the day with a sermon to the people that you work with. Though, mind you, if you should do that, you need not fear being brought under church discipline here. (laughs) But um, I don't believe that that's what the Lord has in mind. I remember a couple years ago when my family was traveling up to Wisconsin. We were taking a stretch break at one of those truck stops that is built over the interstate. You see those on the Illinois tollway and other places. And we were in one of those places. We had kind of walked the distance of it. We were on our way back toward the door we had entered when a man from out of nowhere shouted out and asked if he could have everyone's attention. Can I have your attention, please? And he succeeded in getting a little bit of quiet, you know, after his beckoning. And then once he had the attention of most, he simply announced that Jesus Christ is coming soon. That was his announcement. That's what he wanted everyone's attention so he could tell them that. Well, good for that man. I myself said amen to the announcement. I don't know, though, that such a bold move as that is what Jesus necessarily is looking for from his followers. What he is looking for are those that are not ashamed to own his name. Don't be ashamed of him. When you hear his name blaspheme, don't get into the conversation and seem to condone it. Those who, when they recognize an open door, do speak for him. And they will speak for him. And they won't hesitate to speak for him because of the fear of man. Recognize an open door. Don't be afraid to go through it if it's open for you. I found myself smitten by conviction along these lines. If I'm praying to the Lord... Oh, Lord, open a door for me to witness to someone. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of opportunities come my way from a few days gone by where doors were opened and I didn't go through them. And now I'm asking for the Lord to open another one. Well, yes, I am. The fear of man is something we battle against. Obadiah's fear could also be named something else besides the Uh, Fear of man. It could also be called the fear of sin He bears something in common here with that widow of Zarephath that we looked at earlier You remember when the widow's son died She immediately took that harsh providence from God to be a form of judgment on her for her sins What have I to do with you, O man of God, that you've come to bring my sins to judgment by the slaying of my son? words that she spoke to that effect. Now we find, interestingly enough, Obadiah manifesting that same fear. Again, the words of verse 9, and he said, What have I sinned, that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? His fear was obviously misplaced, but having said that, Sin is something that we should dread and fear. Christ shows us just how much we should dread or fear sin when he says in Matthew 5, Verses 29 and 30, this is Christ now in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. You know, if people took that literally and came under conviction for what they watch on the Internet, there'd be a whole lot less eyes in the world, wouldn't there? A lot of eyes would have to be plucked out. Christ continues, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, Christ is not suggesting here that we literally maim ourselves in our battle against sin. When we studied the Sermon on the Mount a number of years ago, I devoted a study to this section of the sermon and stated at that time that we are to hate and fear sin that much. Don't treat it lightly. Don't be so casual about it. The very least you would have to say about these words from Christ is, you better take it seriously, you better dread it, you ought to fear it. We're not to treat it as casually as we're prone to do. But the way we pluck out our eyes, our cut off, our right hands, you could say is by preaching to ourselves. And not just preaching to ourselves, but preach fire and brimstone to yourself with regard to your own sin. Recognize what your sin deserves. It does deserve everlasting condemnation. But then also recognize what your sin did to Christ. It brought the hammer on the nails that were driven into his hands and feet. Your sins and my sins crucified the Prince of Life. That should create in our minds and in our hearts a dread for sin. I hate sin because of where it was taking me. I hate sin because of what it did to my Savior. So Obadiah's fear could be called the fear of man. This fear is addressed by Solomon in Proverbs 29, verse 25, where he says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Obadiah's fear could also be called a fear of sin. How Obadiah feared that Elijah's command to go tell Ahab Elijah was there. He took to be an act of judgment on him for his sins. His fear could also be called the fear of death. What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? verse 9 The fear of death interestingly enough is dealt with in Hebrews as a fear that brings a soul into bondage Hebrews 2:14 For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The fear of the Lord brings bondage. Whenever I read that verse, I'm reminded of an elder back at Faith Free in Greenville. This was years ago. This man, long since, has gone home to be with the Lord. But in his later years, he was devoted to taking care of his wife, who was aged and infirmed. Uh, This man himself had a heart condition that had him in and out of the hospital repeatedly. And I remember on one such occasion where he had been in the hospital, then he'd been treated and released, and he was at church that night, and he, he asked Dr. Cairns if he could address the congregation, to which Dr. Cairns said, certainly, And I remember when he spoke to us he said I could see the light shining out of the door I could see heaven right before me And I was so anxious to go through that door But it's as if the Lord had said to me Not yet Horace I'm not done with you yet And you could see Horace kind of heave a sigh and say So I'm with you for a little while longer And the thought that struck me at that time is, here's a man who's been delivered from the bondage of the fear of death. He was ready to go. Oh, what a blessing the gospel is to deliver us from that fear. All of these fears then had gripped Obadiah, the fear of man, the fear of judgment for sin, and the fear of death and so are there competing fears that are found in the hearts and minds of all true Christians, the thing we must consider in closing our study today is how do we conquer the fear of man and the fear of sin and the fear of death? How can we displace these fears with the fear of the Lord? How can we cultivate the one and conquer the other We could devote much more time to answering this question than what I'm going to devote to it now as we come to the end of this study. Suffice it to say here today that in conquering the wrong fears and displacing them with the right fear, we should recognize what kind of spirit it is that God gives to Christians. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So let's uh, identify the source of our fears when we're dealing with competing fears. And let's um, identify what the source is for any particular fear. Is this from God or is this of man? Is this of God or is this from the devil? The spirit of fear that Paul has in view here is an attitude of mind and heart that arises carnally or may even be planted or magnified by the devil. The spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind amounts really to the spirit of the gospel. You are the recipient of resurrection power as a Christian. And the same power that took you from spiritual death and brought you to spiritual life is the power that can uphold you also. You are the recipient of the love of God. Spend much time, as I said earlier, at the foot of the cross when you find yourself doubting God's love, when you're asking yourself, Lord, why are all these dreadful circumstances upon me? Don't you love me? Oh, don't approach the issue so carnally in those circumstances. But instead go to the cross of Christ and see one Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In your place condemned he stood. Sealed your pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And behold him there. uh, Until the truth of Calvary's cross is again the flame that's burning in your heart. And you can say, Lord, I don't understand what all you're doing with me. But this much I do know. You love me. How can you not You've demonstrated it with the greatest demonstration of love that divine wisdom could conceive in sending your son to die. And from a sound mind you may reason that since Christ loved you, nothing, Romans chapter 8, will ever sever you from that love. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 37. And how is that so? How is it that in all of these things we are more than conquerors? Well, here's how it is so. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In the midst of your failures, for those times when you, like Peter, deny your Lord's, then know as well that not even your failures or denials can sever you from Christ's love any more than Peter's denials cut him off from Christ's love. So if it turns out, in examining your own heart in life, you, you find yourself having to confess, Oh Lord, I have failed so often. The fear of man has gripped my heart uh, time and again, more times than I even want to admit. You should know that God's grace is such that not even that cuts you off from his love. The wonderful thing about grace, you know, it enables you to start every day afresh. The Lord's mercies are renewed every morning. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So even if you have to, after honest examination, admit to many failures, uh, to many fears, will plead the blood of Christ over them. Lord, give me the grace needed for this day. Help me to believe the gospel today. For Lord, if I will have faith in Christ today, I do believe that I'll be equipped for anything you see fit to bring my way. And we live by the cross So let's cultivate the right kind of fear by cultivating the fear of the Lord and let's conquer the wrong kind of fears by being more than conquerors through him that loved us. May the Lord himself aid us in our knowledge and experience of the fear of the Lord. May we indeed respond to the invitation come unto me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Let's close them in prayer, and let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this time to a close, we plead the blood of Christ, O oh Lord, over the wrong kinds of fears that too often grip us. We are, dear God, so very weak in and of ourselves, but how we thank Thee for the Spirit that Thou hast given to us, of power and love and a sound mind. O oh, blessed Spirit of God, we pray that we will be much more under Thy power and influence, so that the fear of man that bringeth a snare may be displaced by reverential awe for Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our praise and our service.